Amen. All right, great to be with you today. Every time I come down here, there's progress, progress. Man, I'm sure you guys are probably getting tired of it, but it's pretty cool when you just pop in occasionally to see a new atrium and to see a huge parking lot and everything here. So hang in there, guys. It's coming together. It looks good. Just want to encourage you with that. So um, there's going to be actually a little bit of audience participation later. So I'm priming the pump right now for you. So when I ask the question later on, why does God give us promises? Why does God give us promises? I really do want an answer from you. Okay, it isn't rhetorical. It's kind of a Simon Says thing. I'll say Simon Says, and you'll say, okay, do that. So just keep that in mind. Why does God give us promises? That'll be coming up in the middle of the message. So yeah, so today we're looking at one of the biggest promises fulfilled in Scripture. It's the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. And it got me thinking about anticipation of, of events, great events. And so I was thinking, okay, over the last 100 years, what are some of the most looked forward to anticipated events in our history? And a few things came to mind. One is, I don't know if you recognize this picture here. So anybody knows this picture? Raise your hand. You've seen it before. Okay. Wow. Okay. I'm impressed. So what this is, this is, this is end of World War II. And it's kind of an iconic picture of a sailor kissing a nurse in Times Square in New York City at the end of World War II. And, you know, World War II had been going on for years and years and years. And we know now how it comes out, but, of course, they didn't back then. And so there's huge celebrations to the Times. Yeah, this is 1945 in Times Square, New York City. Another one that came to mind was in the 1960s. Fast forward. So, like, in 1961, President John Kennedy sets the agenda and says, by the end of this decade, let's put a man on the moon. I was one when he said that. I was nine when it happened. And I remember watching it on TV at the time. So this is a huge thing. And a whole world is watching this because we've been building, building, building to make this thing happen. So unless you're one of those conspiracy people and think it really didn't happen and it's just all staged in a lot somewhere, I think it happened. But, so this was a huge occasion for all the world. Fast forward another... Uh, 50 years or so, no, 30 years, and we get to Y2K. Yeah, yeah. So Y2K, really, years building up to it. Literally, it's like, okay, is the apocalypse going to happen? Is all technology going to break down? All the utilities are going to be shut down. Literally, people are saying, is this like the end of the world as we know it? Some people went so far as to sell their house in town go out and get an acreage so they could have a well and they could have propane so they could take care of their heating, you know, in the middle of the wintertime in case everything shut down. And they stored up all these five-gallon buckets of, of grains and wheats and things to make sure they were taken care of if the economy totally shut down. Could you imagine people going to such lengths for what amounted to be nothing? I think our family just last year got rid of the last of those five-gallon buckets. <laughs> And we did enjoy the acreage experience for a time. It was, it was good. But it, was, it was, you know, ended up being a big nothing. Uh, on a personal level, um, in 1982, after basically two years of dating and two years of being engaged, um, this lovely couple here, um, my wife was here at the first service. You missed her, sorry. She doesn't look any different. 
But um, that, was, that was us then in 1982. So we just celebrated our 40th anniversary last year. And then about five years later, we welcomed the birth of our oldest son, Paul. There, some of you know Paul. And um, so again, some pretty big events in our lives at least. The thing is about all these things, whether we're talking about how does World War II come out, you know, what about getting a man on the moon, whether it's Y2K, whether it's getting married, having kids, none of those are promised to us. None of those were, were, were settled ahead of time. As people were going through them, they didn't know how it was going to come out. Yet when God promises, when God promises something and it's in his word, that's something that's sure and it's going to happen. And that's what we're going to look at today. Before we do, we're going to take a bit of a, of a trip back and we're going to see how did Abraham get here. Kind of like, you know, a week or two ago when you were looking at Lot, you know, and how he ended up. We're going to see what a life of faith looks like versus a life of sight, which was Lot. So let's just circle back. Genesis 12, 25 years before today's passage. Abraham gets the call. I'll make you a great nation. All right? In Genesis 13, Lot and Abraham separate because they've all got, you know, great stores of, you know, goods and they have servants and all this sort of thing. And so they separate. God, again, promises them, I'll make your descendants like the dust of the earth. Genesis 15, God makes his covenant with Abraham and tells him the heir will come from his own body. So now God refines it a little bit. Because Abraham thought, ah, it's going to be Eleazar, this, this servant of mine. And God says, no, there's actually going to be, you know, somebody that's going to come from your body. Your offspring is innumerable as the stars, God says. Genesis 16, 10 years have passed, though. 10 years have passed, and there's nothing. He's getting older, Sarah's getting older, no kids. So, Hagar. And Hagar... His servant girl has a child, Ishmael. And that, of course, sets in motion conflict for generations. And we'll even have that talked about next week regarding Ishmael and Isaac. Genesis 17, one year from the date we're looking at today, one year earlier, at age 99, God renews his covenant with Abraham and adds a few things to it. One, he commands to circumcise all males on the eighth day. Second, he says that Sarah will bear a child next year, and Abraham laughs. It's kind of one of those too good to be true, really? Laughs? It's not like he's jeering in God's face or anything, but it's like, it's like wow, really? Genesis 18. The three visitors come. Okay. And the son is again promised to Sarah. This time Sarah overhears. Who laughs now? Sarah laughs. Kind of the same thing. It's like, wow, could I really have joy in my old age, she says? You know, could my shame be taken away of not having children? And it's just such an exciting thought. She laughs. She laughs. So that brings us to our passage today. Genesis 21, 1 through 2 says, The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him. It's a funny thing about threes sometimes in Scripture. 
even these two verses, as he said what he had promised at the appointed time, God had told him, we're making it sure, we're confirming it. Elsewhere in scripture, you see, holy, 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 three times. Or even the idea when the Lord is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and he's tempted in three different areas, and how does the Lord respond each time, of course? It is written. It is written. It is written. Right? It's just solid. It's sure. It's confirmed. Verses 3 through 5 says, Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Here we see two key ways that Abraham obeyed. One gives him the name that God told him to give him, which is Isaac, which means laughter or he laughs. Okay? And he has him circumcised. And it's the first record where a baby is circumcised on the eighth day. Okay? So this life of faith that we've seen in Abraham over all these chapters of Scripture, these decades of life, what does that faith lead to? That faith leads to obedience. Okay? That's a theme throughout Scripture. Faith leads to obedience, which leads to joy. Verses 6 and 7, Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. Sarah laughs again. And this is a different laughter, though. This is just a laughter of pure joy. I don't know if you guys have you ever been just so happy or maybe even sometimes so relieved. You just laugh. And people look at you. That's okay. So she laughed a year before. She laughs now. Laughter is a good thing. But some laughter is not a good thing. As you'll see next week, when we see the mocking laughter of Ishmael. But that's for next week. So, there's a connection again between faith and obedience and joy. So this was a huge promise in Scripture. It's a big promise. It's fulfilled. It has tremendous impact throughout Scripture, continuing through generations and centuries to this day. Isaac, Ishmael, Israelites, Arabs. It just continues on to this day. But we're talking about big promises. We're talking about the most important promise in Scripture. We're talking about the main thing. We're talking about the central person of all of Scripture. We're talking about the Deliverer, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And there's hundreds of of prophetic promises in Scripture that point to the Messiah. We do not have a blind faith by any means. We have a solid foundation for our faith. We never need to be ashamed of that. So I just want to hit on a few of those right now. Pretty familiar ones. I'm just going to give you the reference. You can look it up later if you need to. But first we start with the virgin birth. Isaiah 7.14 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Bethlehem birthplace, Micah 5.2. Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Deliverance. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you know, in Luke chapter four, when Jesus is speaking in his own little synagogue there, and he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, what does he say? These words are fulfilled today in your hearing. The triumphal entry, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Suffering servant, all of Isaiah 53 is great as far as referring to the coming Messiah. A couple passages, verses 5 and 6, says he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, Punishment for our peace was on him. We are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And lastly, then, the crucifixion. Psalm 22 says, For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierce my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves. They cast lots for my clothing. Again, just a few of the hundreds of prophetic promises in Scripture to our Lord. Why does God give us promises? This is your moment. Why does God give us promises? Hope. Hope. What else? Assurance. Assurance, okay. Any else? For his glory. For his glory. Okay. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's right. Any more? Thank you. That is really good. Yeah. I, had, I was thinking of those things. Again, hope, trust, purpose, security, confidence, all those things. That's why God gives us promises. We need his promises. I'm going to touch on just a few of those this morning. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What do we get from this? Well, pretty confident that he's got us in his hands, right? No good work got us there. No bad work's going to get us out of there. He's got us in his hand, right? So, so it's clear that he's deity, he is God. I and the Father are one, right? Why is this important for today? Yeah, it's great that it's great that 
when I die, I'm, I, things are settled. But what does that even mean for today? Why is that important? Well, think about this. You know, I referenced World War II at the start of our message here. Do any of you, any of you like to watch like World War II documentaries or that kind of thing or war things? I do. Okay, I've seen some answers there. Well, why do we do that? Well, one reason we do that is because we're curious. But the other thing is because we know how it comes out, right? We win. We win. So even though it gets a little tense at times, a little exciting, we know how it's going to come out. We win. That's why we keep watching it over and over and over. Or, or sports videos from back in the day, right? If there's any older Hawkeye fans back there, you still remember 1985 against Michigan when it comes down to a last final kick by a guy named Rob Houtland. And every time I watch it, it goes through the uprights. And Iowa wins. Is that great or what? Do I ever watch videos where we lose? Who does that? (laughs) Guys, we win. We win. And when we're going through really hard times, as we will, as we do, as many of you are right now, oh, man be able to lift up your eyes and remember, as hard as this is, this is temporary. We win. It makes all the difference in the world. When we die, we're not like those who have no hope. 2 Peter 1, there's a lot of good stuff in it, but a couple of things I want to point out. Verses 3 and 4, it says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he's given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Folks, you know this. We've got the world we have to battle against. We've got the evil one. We've got our own flesh. Okay? We've got a lot to battle with. But that's why God gives us the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, by that power, he's given us everything required. Do we really believe that? And Peter is very clear here, and it says, he says life and godliness. And that's on purpose. Because if he just said life, we would be tempted to just go to the end and say, oh yeah, I know. I've got eternal life. It's, It's cool for that. But he also says for godliness. That's for right now. That's to deal with, our, with our, all the garbage we have going on in our lives right now. That big word, sanctification, that we talk about. That, that, that this life, Christian life is all about. That's what his power has given us and these promises are there for right now. So why, why is it so hard for us to claim those promises for the issues that we're dealing with today? Well, at the end of the paragraph kind of addresses that in verse 9. It says, The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Essentially what this is saying is, if if you're not growing in character, if you're continually, you know, being overcome and defeated by sins, it's likely because essentially you've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten your cleansing of pain. You've forgotten the gospel. And here's how this happens. 
it's because we have this thing called the gospel gap. I didn't coin this phrase, but it's that we tend to say, okay, at some point I got saved. Made a profession of faith. That was back then. And I know that sometime down the road, either when I die or the Lord returns, I'm going to be with him in heaven. But what about this 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years right now on earth? What difference does the gospel make for me today? Well, it makes a whole lot of difference. Because when I remember how much I've been forgiven, when I remember how much I've been loved, I can extend that to my wife without expecting something in return or having to get all my needs met from her when I recognize that I have everything I need in Christ. Or when I sin or I'm struggling with some habitual claim on my life that I just can't seem to kick, okay? But I remember it's all been paid for on the cross. His wrath is totally taken care of. There's no condemnation. There's no blame. There's no shame. I simply have to recognize it, repent, confess my sins, claim his forgiveness, That is what the Christian life is all about. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. It's the gospel. We never graduate from it. And as we remember that, that's when God does great work in our lives. Martin Luther has a great quote. He says, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. Martin Luther, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. What he means is we can only deal with today, right? Part of the struggle we have with enjoying today, getting joy out of today being obedient today, even being able to focus on today is because at least two reasons. One is we're called to the past. And we're called to the past as we recognize regrets that we have or we recognize a longing for kind of a bygone era, nostalgia, things were better back then. Just like the Israelites were longing to go back to Egypt because they had all the meat and everything was so supplied for them and they forget they were slaves, okay? We may have literally had some good times back then, but that was then. And we may have a bunch of regrets for how we lived our life. It's those things that will draw us back and keep us from being able to claim the promises for today and enjoy life today as God would have us as we walk in him. So there's looking to the past, being drawn back to the past. But then there's always looking to the future, And again, there's a couple things there. One is we could be anxious and worry about the future. What's going to happen? You know, how's God going to take care of me? What's going to happen to my family, my job, my health? And another way we look to the future is, well, when I graduate from college and get a good job, then I'll be happy. When I get a wife, then I'll be happy. When I um, uh, get a better house, then I'll be happy. That whole idea of, When my circumstances change, then I'll be happy. It's a lie. It's a lie of the devil. 
And one way or the other, we're just being called to look back or look ahead when really there is just this day and that day. And that is the most anticipated day there is. Now, that is the most anticipated day there is. It is for the believer, and it should be for the unbeliever as well. 2 Peter 3 says, Above all, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, Where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of the heaven, by the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So stopping there. We've been in Genesis for a long time, right? The earth is created out of water, through water. The world was flooded by water, destruction of all the ungodly. That won't happen again. God promised he would not again flood the earth, but it will be destroyed through fire, being kept for the day of judgment. That is the day that is coming. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not even sure what that means, you're not, this whole gospel thing I'm talking about, you don't know what that is. You've not repented of your sins, placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, claim his righteousness, and you're still dead in your sins and the wrath of God is still upon you. And that day means judgment for you and eternal punishment in hell. And you don't know the day or the hour either of your death or that day. So I plead with you if that is your state today, don't let another day go by without talking to somebody. Talk to somebody you came with. Talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to myself. It's a terrible day if you don't know Christ. But the passage finishes and it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. The earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells for Christians. We don't fear death, and we look forward to that day. We look forward to that day. We'll be with Christ forever. All pain is gone. All suffering is gone. Our battle with sin is gone. That is a glorious day. And what are we called to? We're called to live holy 
and godly lives. Now, I'm pretty confident that's not a revelation to you guys. It would have been a revelation if I stood up here and said, don't live holy and godly lives. That's pretty clear. Those of you that are parents know, as your kids get older, it usually takes a little more than just do it, because I said so. You can keep doing that if you want. Once the teen years hit, not so good. What has to happen is you more and more need to be bringing in the why. Why? What's behind it? And it really is enough, of course, if God says to do it, that we do it. Yes, I get that. Yet, he's also gracious enough to make it clear why. And this gets back to how we started with the idea of faith, obedience, and joy. They're all wrapped up together. Faith, obedience, and joy. That's what I want to end with today is a couple passages. Because ultimately, please don't leave here with, I've just got to try harder. I've just got to do more. That's not it. That's just works. That's not it. It always comes back to our relationship with Jesus Christ and his grace and his love and his mercy. Always comes back to that. That's the driver for the obedience, which produces the joy. 1 John 5, 1 through 4 says... Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for, this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. The love of Christ compels us. We love because he first loved us. That love produces a desire to obey. And that obedience allows us to abide in him. To abide in him. And that's where the joy, that's where the power comes from. And not to live your best life now. I'm not talking about that. We're all going to have trials. In this life, you will have suffering. We're, we're bought in to the eternal life, and we're bought into the suffering. That's what goes with being a Christian. And yet, there is joy in that. That is promised to us. And our Lord said in John 15, he says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain or abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Why? I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. That is the heart of our Savior. That is the heart of our Savior that we abide in him and experience his joy. And that is my prayer for all of you today. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much, Lord, for your faithfulness to us, Lord. Thank you that by your grace, by your mercy, by your all-sufficient power, we can abide in you. We can obey you. We can experience your joy. We give you all glory and honor and praise. In your son's name, amen.